That was amazing. All right, am I on? Good. Good morning, everyone. I am pre-warning you. I cry if I want to. I have tried many times to not cry. I have tried to be a composed person, and um, it comes out looking like I'm constipated, so I've decided <laughs> not to do that anymore, and I'm just giving into it. So, for those of you who don't know, EFD, Exodus from Darkness, is a ministry focused on apologetics and evangelism. This means we encourage people to explore their own beliefs and values while emphasizing that the sole source of all eternal assurance is Jesus Christ. EFD was founded, as you heard, by Daniel and Mary Shiesta. I am their firstborn, and yes, they know how blessed and lucky they are. Um, so today I'll just start briefly giving you a little update on EFD so far this year. Thanks to, um, thanks to those who support the ministry through powerful prayers and their givings, this year EFD has been able to accomplish many things, but five particular ones I'm going to talk about today. Firstly, develop and translate the book Understanding and Freedom, that's on the left over there, into 12 different languages, Arabic, Bangla, English, Farsi, French, Hindi, Indonesian, Russian, Mandarin, Swahili, Turkish, and Urdu. These translations all are all available for free um, to be downloaded on the website. And we've seen amazing um, transformations already of people who have had access um, to this material. Number two, EFD has created and shared over 300 educational videos on YouTube, videos that highlight the values of Christ to those of Islam. And through this online con um, content, we've witnessed um, transformative and miraculous changes in the lives of individuals. Three, EFD has been supporting Joshua, a former imam's son. An imam is an Islamic clergyman. Joshua gave his heart to the Lord, and he has been um, talking to people and bringing people in Zimbabwe and Mozambique to the Lord. We are supporting Joshua by providing him with housing and a poultry facility to ensure a sustainable source of income. Fourth, EFD has been speaking at churches and Christian communities and organizations across the globe in person and via Zoom um, with a focus on equipping others to effectively engage in their local community and with their Muslim friends. And last but not least, um, this year an amazing thing happened in EFD and that was that Janet came on board. My... Um, Daniel, my dad, has asked me for many years <laughs> to come on board um, so that I can be trained to eventually take over for him um, once he retires. And my answer more or less has been, no thank you old man, I do not speak on the things that you speak of. I do not have his giftings, I do not have his qualifications, and I definitely did not have his calling. But this year, he asked the same question in a slightly different way. This year, he said, Janet, if you come on board, in a few years' time, I'm going to retire. 
you can take over EFD and focus it towards what you're passionate about. Oh, hello, said I. <laughs> so before saying yes, I uh, fasted and prayed for three days. And after three days of hunger, I said, I'll do anything. <laughs> No, I said yes, and that it would be a privilege to be a pencil in the hand of the spirit that is going to take EFD into the next um, miraculous, revolutionary season. And there's a dog here. How exciting. I love that you guys allow dogs in here. That's cute. So I'm going to encourage all of you to sign up to the EFD newsletter and watch this space as uh, more wonderful things um, come out of Christ's involvement, and not involvement, Christ's leadership in EFD. Now, I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm a little bit distracted and annoyed by my laptop, so I'm going to go to it every now and then, but uh, I'm not too worried about my notes. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story now. You've heard, some of you who have heard Daniel's, um, Daniel and Mary's um, testimony um, will know that it is infused with such exciting, frightening, amazing, miraculous things like being sent to an execution prison and having to cross the border on foot into Turkey, having to um, dodge the radar of the government under the, you know, under the cloud of darkness as we try to go through the airport with three little kids, my mum with her three little kids. So there's a lot of amazing, exciting things. But today, I hope you're not going to be disappointed, but I'm going to share my point of view of that story. It doesn't dismiss what actually happened. It just shows that a child has no clue what adults know to be true. An adult, a child has their own truth. Um... While I'm saying these stories, I want you to take note of the people throughout this story that were compelled to say yes and amen to the Lord. I'm just going to tell you the story. I'm just going to tell you about the people. You take note of those who said yes and amen. Iran, before I was born, was a free country. I would say more free than America is. And it was a safe place some degree. I mean, everywhere has its, um, I guess, uh, unsafe elements. It was a free country. We've had kings and queens all the way back into the time of Esther in the Old Testament and even further back than that. But a new movement came about where a new world order was promised. A new government said, we're going to make things better. And the people of Iran, people like my parents, believed it. And they voted for this new world order. And they came into power. And they were the fundamentalist Islamic government. A power that my people are still trying to get out of and be free from, even right at this moment today. So... When I was born, I was born into a fundamentalist Islamic country, Iran. I went to a fundamentalist Islamic school. I was raised by fundamentalist Islamic parents. As far as I knew, this was always the way the world was. And I didn't know that anywhere else in the world, people were living in a different way to me. 
I'm going to give you a little insight into my little brain and heart at the time. One day, one of Dad's friends came um, to visit him. While they were sitting on the floor, as Persians do, um, drinking tea, my dad called me over. I was around six or seven years old at the time. He called me over and he sat me on his lap and he started bragging about me, saying what a clever girl I am, how well I'm doing at school, and that I got 10 out of 10 at one of my class tests or something or other. And I had a piggy bank, so his friend put money into the piggy bank. And I remember as I sat on his lap thinking, this is the nicest and scariest place all at the one time. Why? Because my dad was cruel and unkind. I had witnessed on countless occasions him belittling my mother with his words and his hands. So I knew it was beautiful to be close to my dad and be encouraged and spoken highly of in that moment, but I knew that close proximity to him was also the most frightening place that I have ever experienced, had ever experienced up to that point as well. Now I want to give you a little insight into my life um, outside of the home. At school, when it came to lunchtime, we would, like all other kids around the world, go and play in the playground, school playground. Now, our school playground had sandbags, and I'm assuming they were left from the time of war. So we had the sandbags, and um, my friends and I had, uh, would play a game where we'd collect sticks, and they'd be our weapons of sorts. And the master and commander of that particular day's game, and particularly, usually it was me, um, and I would have said, when the Americans come through the gate, you attack from over there and I'll attack from over here. Now I'll tell you, I didn't know what Americans meant. All I knew was the chance that we were taught, death to America, and many other ones. So for me, an American could have been an animal, it could have been an alien, I had no idea. I'd never seen an American on TV, I never saw it in my cartoons, I never read it, saw him in a book, I had no idea. I just knew the words that we were taught and that the Americans were my enemy. So that was life outside of the home. Once the religious fundamentalist government came into power, with the help of political parties like my dad's political party, then they said, well, all that we promised you, we lied, because we are allowed to lie for the sake of our God. Now, people have realized what they've actually voted for, and my dad and his political party were placed into an execution prison. Because my dad had friends in high places, they were able to get him out of prison. But this didn't stop the many attempts at his life. They made life miserable for anyone that was in any way connected to him. At this point, my parents decided that the best thing to do is for dad to escape the country. And the reason it wasn't 
us escaping the country as a family is because my mom, being a woman, and three little children, six, and um, I forget how old the, the others were. I don't know. One of them was a baby. The other one was a toddler. <laughs> um, so you couldn't escape through the mountains, uh, through the borders of Iran into Turkey because it's on foot. It's on being stationary, being quiet, avoiding guards. You can't do that. So my dad had to make that journey on his own, not knowing if he'll ever see us again, if my mum will ever see him again, if us kids. So we, we, they had to make that decision. And dad was gone. Sometime after, while dad was living his life to the best he could in Turkey, my parents and I tried to stay in contact as much as possible, knowing that their phone calls would uh, be tapped. Um, a law came about in Iran that the marriageable age was going to be brought down to the age of nine. And seeing as I was pretty close to that age, this frightened my mum, especially now that she didn't have a husband to protect and defend her children in this choice. There was an incident where uh, my parents tell me where we were all out, and because I'm such a tall girl, there's, there's an age where you're supposed to wear a covering, like, well, it would have been nine. Um, but I was younger than that, but because I'm so tall, I look like I was older, and apparently a clergyman approached my dad and said, this girl needs to be wearing head covering. My dad's like, she's five or six. He goes, well, she looks like she's marriageable age. So that will give you a nice little insight into their perverted minds. One night, my uncle, my dear darling uncle, who worked at the airport, um, got my mum, my sisters and I into a car drove us to the airport, and at this time there was a war going on between Iran and Iraq, so the government wasn't paying too close attention to its citizens, like who was leaving, who was staying. Um, so my uncle was able to get us through all the, all the security without alerting any of the officials. So we managed to get into an airplane that went to Iran. My, my mum couldn't pack, pack anything, take anything with her, and I can only imagine the fear and the anxiety and the concern of what will happen if they get us now. I've got my three little girls, I've got my baby who's constantly screaming, I've got nothing, I don't know if I'm ever going to see my family again. This is the life I've known, and I'm going into an unknown. Everything I just told you about my parents... I did not experience that. I did not understand that. What I saw as a kid was no one would tell me what's happening. I was too scared to ask. Dad was gone. I don't know where. I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't know for how long. People are angry. People are sad. I have no idea. All I knew of that night when my uncle got us up to put us into a car to go to the airport was that I was up. That was hushed tones. I was dressed, and all I could do was focus on this water bottle of mine that was at the corner of the table. Someone had given me a very cool water bottle. It was kind of like robotic looking. And all I knew was something is happening, and I don't know if I'm ever going to see this water bottle ever again. 
Little did I know what my poor grandmother was thinking. And I was too scared, too shaky and frightened to get up and just grab the water bottle. But then we were ushered into the car and look back at my grandmother saying goodbye. And all I'm thinking is, I'm never going to see that water bottle. So I have this um, fun little thought that maybe when I get into heaven and the Lord ushers me into my home, I see a water bottle at the table. That would be fun. So now we have landed in Turkey. Now we are reunited with our dad. It was the first time that I saw this alien world. I grew up in the Islamic Republic of Iran, and I saw nothing different to that. But all of a sudden, I saw little girls without head coverings, women without head coverings, walking around, talking, laughing, men and women talking to each other, and people embracing, and I was confused and scared. I didn't even know that I could be happy about that. I had no idea what was happening. In the time that dad was in Turkey by himself, prior to us joining him, he was working, he um, was studying, getting his doctorate degree at university, he started a business with a new acquaintance, the new acquaintance stole all his money, and he tried to go and find this new acquaintance at a church, because one time they had a conversation that this guy had gone to a church, so he thought, of course, he must be a Christian, because Christians are thieves and liars and wicked people, so he goes to the church to find his friend. And in that time, the brothers in the church heard him, embraced him, invited him into their lives, loved him, and helped him find this acquaintance slash business partner of his. He was caught at the border of Germany with drugs and all the money. But dad couldn't get access to the money because the company was not based on contracts or any legal paperwork. It was just trust-based. So they couldn't give it back or trace it back to dad. So now he's in the country without any money, any finances to be able to possibly send to his family. So now we are reunited as a family. And week one goes by, week two goes by, and mum's like, something is off with this man. She's experiencing his kindness like he's saying lovey-dovey darling words to her and he's playing with his daughters and just having fun and she's like, what is up with you? Like how long is this initial hello, we're back going to last? Like I just want to get back to what I know. <laughs> and at that point he shared with her his newfound faith because in that time that he was spending with the people at the church trying to get access to his money, he realized what an amazing group of people they are, and then he was curious about their faith. And I'm not going to go into it today, but a beautiful, amazing, miraculous dream is how the Lord revealed himself to Dad. I'm telling you, my parents' story needs to be in like a movie. <laughs> Let me do it, please. Um, <laughs> um, 
It's an amazing story. So she's experiencing this kind husband of hers and he's saying, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian now and she's completely disillusioned about religion. She was a pious, very good Muslim all her life and look where it led her. In a foreign land, without family, without friends, with nothing to her name. So she's like, I just, all religions are the same, I don't want to hear about it. Now, the ladies at the church kept giving her a call, welcoming her, trying to invite her into their lives, inviting her to ladies' meetings, and she said, no, 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 please come, no, please come, no, 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 no. And just to shut them up, she finally said, sure, I'll come. And she went to a ladies' meeting, and she's got her head covering on, and at the meeting, one lady after another shares about how the Lord has spoken to them that week. And she was confused and somewhat mortified. I am the pious religious person here. God should be speaking to me. Why would he be speaking to these women? They're not even wearing head coverings. So with that irritation and anger in her she went home and she went about her week. And that week, she had a dream. I'm going to share that dream with you. And I'm going to do it without crying. <laughs> All right. Put your acting skills into gear. <laughs> um, she had a dream that she was in this beautiful green field. The grass was knee high. And she was walking side by side with Jesus. He didn't need to introduce himself. She just knew that it was Jesus. And there was a few ladies on his right side and a few on her left. And they were walking in blissful silence. As they were walking, they approached a part in the field where it became a deep, dark valley. She couldn't see to the bottom of it. And she stopped. But Jesus and the other women, they just walked on air to the other side where the field continued. And the Lord stopped and looked back at her and said, daughter, why aren't you coming? And she replied, teacher, if I take another step, I'm going to fall. And he said, you won't, you won't fall. Take a step. One of the other women reached out and she held her hand and took another step and the whole valley came up and became level ground. It was at this point in the middle of the night, she woke up. Daniel, Daniel, what is this? She told him this dream that she's had. And he opened up the scripture to Isaiah 40, verses 4 to 5, and I'm going to read that to you now. Every valley shall be raised, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So my darling mother was very excited to go back to the women's group that week and say, guess how the Lord has spoken to me? I did it. I did it. I lied, there's a tear. <laughs> so my parents were baptized together in Turkey. Um, 
one of the exciting things about our family is it just happened that my parents were baptized together, and it happened that when it was my baptism, my sisters and I got baptized together. So I think that's a very neat, special, intentional thing by God. Here is where I'm going to tell you about my first encounter with Jesus. So, we're in Turkey. I'm around seven, eight, nine. I can't remember how old, around that age. Um, and my parents are believers. We're at church. It's a Christmas or Easter celebration. I'm not sure. The women are in the um, church kitchen getting the food ready for the barbecue. The men are, I don't know, doing what men do, talking or something. And the kids are running around playing. And the Jesus movie is being projected on a wall. And at one point, I stopped running around and I started watching. And I watched this Jesus who was gentle of speech, very kind, very thoughtful, very intentional, and very nice to children. And I remember at that point thinking, if he was here right now, I bet he would like me. I bet he would be nice to me. And I like to think of that as my first encounter with Jesus. Now, four years came, four years of us being in Turkey. My parents are trying to do their best in life, working hard, but any of their finances is going towards minimal rent and putting uh, a small amount of food on the table. Within these four years, close to the end of these four years, the Iranian government found out where we were. And there were um, secret police sent um, to find us, and we had a few close calls. I'll share one of them with you. The school I was going to, um, the principal had a few Turkish police come and ask for a child with this last name, Shayesta. And the principal said, uh, we don't have anyone by that name here. And he called my parents up straight after, said, you need to take her out. They know you're here. So my parents took me out of school. Um, it is a, one of their tactics is to take the children back, and then the whole family follows, and um, torture and execution ensues. So my parents are now thinking, we need to get out of Turkey. They know we're here. But they don't know where to go, they don't have money, they don't have contacts, and the only place that came to people's minds was America. But my mom didn't want to raise her daughters in America because back then America was seen as a, you know, um, immoral, unsafe, violent place. Thankfully, that's changed. <laughs> so one day, as the church keeps praying for our family, um, as my parents keep praying, one day a tourist comes through the church doors and she sits in the service and afterwards she's speaking to the, the pastor of the church. This tourist, her name is Margaret. Margaret is Christian and Margaret is Australian. As she has a talk with the pastor of the church, she randomly just says, is there someone who'd like me to sponsor them to come to Australia? And he points to us that we need to get out yesterday. And Margaret goes back to Australia, and with the help of her church, she starts the sponsorship process. 
Six months go by, a lot of paperwork, a lot of backwards and forwards, and as some of you may know, when you are trying to attain um, a visa um, to enter a country, you need to have um, money, a certain amount of money in your account to prove to the embassy of that country that you can take care of yourself and support yourself and your family. Now, I told you, my parents don't have money. So they kept praying. They kept praying and trusting that if God has orchestrated this, then God will provide a way. I believe it was the night before my dad was supposed to go to the embassy um, to show evidence of this invisible money that my parents were up until late hours and around, I believe, 10 p.m., they got a knock on the door. Um, fearing that it might be the secret police again, they opened the door with some trepidation. They opened the door, and to their surprise, several families from the church were there. And they were welcoming them in. My mum was really embarrassed because she didn't have tea or biscuits or anything to serve them. They said, we don't want anything, we just want to tell you something and we're out. For the last six months that we've known you are to go to Australia. We and our children have been fasting and putting aside some money for your family. And here is enough money for you guys to get yourself to Australia. And here's extra money, Daniel, so that you can go to Bible college and be trained and go tell the world what God has done. So... We're going to Australia. And this time I was told what was happening and where I'm going and what's going on. And at the same time as we found out we're going to Australia, an Australian TV show had started on Turkish TV. And it was this, you know, showing kangaroos and crocodiles and koalas. And we're all like, oh my goodness, we're going to land in. Like, and crocodiles are going to, you know, attack us and everything. And turned out it takes a lot to find any of those animals in Australia. It's not in normal civilized areas. So we arrive in Australia. And if I was shocked when I landed in Turkey, I was really shocked when I landed in Australia. This is a whole nother world. People are walking around in shorts and flip-flops, and people are hugging women like they own everybody. I was like, what? But there was so much freedom. It was a whole nother level of freedom, and I loved it. And Australia has become my home, will always be my home. I'm going to fast forward to a 16-year-old Janet now, and I'm going to tell you about the second encounter I had with Jesus. At 16, I was uh, sent out of my first high school into a new high school, moving right along. Um, The second high school was a very strict Christian school, and when they say prison is good for some, prison was good for me. When I tell you, this school didn't even believe the truth, let alone all my lies. It was, whew, it really really did bless and help me. Now, at 16, um, I was in year 10, and I had great girlfriends there. They loved me and my wild ways. 
There was a boy by the name of Joseph in grade three. Now, our school went from kindergarten all the way to 12. I know some schools only have like, I don't know, junior, middle, senior school, but we had all the way from kindergarten to 12. Joseph was in the third grade. Joseph was born with a hole in his heart. Joseph now desperately needed a very serious operation. So we all rallied together and prayed for Joseph. Thousands of people were praying for Joseph. Joseph had the operation. The operation was an amazing success. Our prayers were answered. Joseph was awake the next day. So the next day, I was still on a high from this amazing miracle I was a part of. So I went to school grinning from ear to ear, and that's when I found out that Joseph died that morning. And my heart was broken. A darkness came over me that I cannot explain. And you cannot understand it until you've yourself been through the darkness. And I know that many of you have. I thought, God, we all prayed for you. Thousands prayed for Joseph to you. Thousands of us, children, God. When children pray to you, what did you do? You made it a success. He was awake and alive. And then you took him a week before his birthday. You mock us. You are cruel and unkind. You are nothing. And the heaviness on my heart was so heavy that at the age of 16, I can tell you I felt like an 80-year-old. To this day, I have never had such darkness on me. But there was something very unusual about my friends who were also mourning. One of them was Joseph's cousin. They were mourning, they were sad, but they didn't have the same darkness on them. They had joy. I didn't understand how it's possible to have mourning and joy at the same time. And I was too scared to ask because if I found out and then I didn't have it, it would crush me even more. That Saturday morning, I was sitting on my bed um, doing my homework as usual and I had um, music on. It was a compilation of Christian songs that one of my friends made me. She was like, you need to listen to more Christian music. I was like, all right. Um, So I had the Christian music on while I was doing my homework and I couldn't concentrate and I kept thinking about this unjust, cruel God and I never will use his name again. And then the song came on with these lyrics. Get on your knees and give your time. They're the answer you will find in Jesus. He's going to let you know. Stop. Put away my homework. I got on my knees. And I had a very um, unique, for me, moment where I said, Lord, if you are real... Show me and take away my burden. Amen. And something very awkward happened. Nothing happened. 
I felt nothing, I heard nothing, it was just anticlimactic, the movies and the books are wrong, you pray like that, nothing happens. So I was like, well, I'm an idiot. Go back to your homework, let the music keep playing so I could tell my friend, I listened to all the songs she sent me. And I went about for the next seven days. Life, things at home didn't get any better, that was still difficult. Things outside of the house didn't get any easier. That was still difficult. And then Saturday came around again, and I sat down on my bed, started my homework. As I was about to play music, I was like, wait a minute. I'd forgotten what I asked the Lord last Saturday. And as I sat there, I, it was like pins and needles and goosebumps came upon me. I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I asked him to show himself to me by taking away my burden. And I realized, though nothing outside of me was different, the burden in here was light. Now, I'm saying these words to you. They mean a lot more to me than they would to you. I cannot explain it. It's the equivalent, I like to say it's the equivalent of me explaining a hug. I can, what was your name again? Chris, that's it. I can tell you how beautiful and wonderful it is to hug Chris. Oi, she's so cuddly oh, and warm. And oh my goodness, and squishy. I love it. I love it. She smells good. Now I can tell you all of that. Did I do something with my mic? Oh. Okay, there we go. I can tell you, I can describe that amazing hug. I can describe it, but you will never know. Everyone's going to come and hug you after this. You will never know until you go and hug her in person. You will never know. I cannot tell. I mean, it sounds like the silliest thing even when I hear myself going, I just felt less of a burden. It's not that. It's I asked for a specific something in a specific way, and I was in a dark place. And then a week later, I saw that the burden was lighter. That was my second encounter with Jesus, an encounter that has not stopped every single day until today, no matter my ups and downs. It was at that point that I decided life without Jesus must be very lonely and scary and confusing. So I praised God that at 16, I made a decision that many make in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. As wonderful as it is whenever you make that decision, I was thankful that I was going to do life with God. I was a teacher. Um, my qualifications are kindergarten to year 12. But I'm going to tell you a story of when I was a 10th grade teacher. Uh, all the kids were gathered around for assembly and we were supposed to get this rugby player that people like to come and talk to the kids. And I just took this and didn't even take a sip. Give me a second. This is not Gatorade. I took the label off on purpose, even though I just said it. <laughs> um, so this football player was supposed to come and talk to the kids, but he didn't make it because he got stuck on the highway behind a car crash. So, you know, 
you 10 kids, 16-year-olds, they're going to get rowdy and get silly. So um, my supervisor um, said, Janet, get up there, talk, knowing I've never run out of words to say. So between where I was to come into the front, I prayed. I said, Lord, can you tell us something that will stay with us for life? Um, so I got up there, and this is what the Lord inspired, something I'd never planned or thought of before. Hey, kids. So life is like a classroom with two doors. You enter through one door. You live your life in the classroom according to your allocated time, and you exit out the other door. Got it? Life, oh, wait, birth, life, death. Done? Do you guys get that? Birth, life, death. Now, we all know when we go into a classroom who's been there before us. Sometimes we go into a classroom and it smells so pretty, like a bed of roses. And we're like, oh my goodness, whoever was in here, he's more beautiful. And then we go into a classroom and we know that a bunch of stinky, smelly boys were in there. <laughs> and they were passing gas like the ozone layer depended on it. <laughs> I was like, oh, just these. And then there's times you go into a classroom and you're like, oh, no one's been here. So my encouragement to us today and to them and a message to myself as well is what kind of a scent are we going to leave behind? The music can come up now if you guys want. Do you want the people after you to bless the day you were born for the legacy and the aroma that you left behind? Or do you want them to curse the day you were born for the disaster and the stink you left behind? Or are you going to be a person who does nothing? Like there was no point to you being alive. You did nothing for anyone, for anything. You got all these things from God and you did nothing with it. Janet, what are you going to do? Every day, every day say to your Savior, Lord, how can I serve you with what I have, with what I am, with the little I can do? Can I just wash pots and pans? Can I do that joyfully? Can I extend um, an extra seat at my table for someone new? Can I love my family like their salvation depends on it? My encouragement to myself and to all of us today is ask the Lord, how can you serve him every single day? And when he speaks, say yes and amen.